One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Leighton Hewitt, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Leighton Hewitt's career will end at the Australian Open, but not just yet. He was a winner on day two. So were British players Johanna Conter and Andy Murray. Conter superb against Venus Williams. The big developments on the court were the defeats of Rafael Nadal and Simona Halep. We'll review the day's play with the Great Britain Davis Cup captain Leon Smith. We'll hear from Pat Rafter about what makes his old mate Hewitt tick. But first we need to talk about a story that has dominated conversation at the Australian Open over the first two days. An hour before play began on Monday in Melbourne, the BBC and BuzzFeed released a story alleging widespread suspected match-fixing in tennis over the last decade with 16 players, they say, who have ranked in the top 50 repeatedly flagged to the Tennis Integrity Unit over suspicions that they had thrown matches. The governing body quickly organised a press conference to refute any suggestion that they might have suppressed evidence and to assure the tennis world that any reported suspicious activity or intelligence was followed up and investigated, but that only cases with clear evidence could lead to action. The Telegraph's Simon Briggs and myself, David Law, spent the last tennis podcast talking about the action to come on the court, but on day two we found ourselves discussing a story that dominated the first two days of the Australian Open in Melbourne. Yeah, you remember um, each tournament for often the, the, the unexpected that happens. And in this instance, the unexpected was, you know, this uh, quite dramatic revelation uh, by BBC and BuzzFeed. I mean, it's an interesting bit of um, uh, media uh, studies work because it, the story doesn't necessarily tell us an awful lot we didn't already know, but it's been presented in such a dynamic and confident way that it has really caught the tennis world uh, unawares and really got everyone talking so um, it has dominated the first two days for sure and with the timing that because it was on the eve of the first big tournament of the year it has been timed for maximum impact hasn't it and as you say some of the some of the elements to it have you you feel as though it's slightly been repackaged uh, from from past uh, investigations and situations and represented in a way but what were the key elements to it from your perspective? Yeah, I think, it, I'm not knocking the story, I think it was well done and, and it was valuable. The main issue, I think, is simply the, the, the process by which suspicious betting patterns are turned into uh, convictions and prosecutions. And, and the feeling really is that the Tennis Integrity Unit obviously doing their best, they're probably overstretched. There is there maybe a feeling that they could do with a little bit more uh, technology savviness perhaps because the people who who put these 
um, investigations together often are coming at it from a, a data journalism point of view and, and you can imagine that data detection is really the key behind all this. So the people who are investigating haven't brought down any big name players. The allegations are that there's a lot of repeat offenders out there who are not being brought to book and maybe are continuing with this nefarious activity. And of course, if you are if you are on the circuit and you haven't been prosecuted and you do have a connection with organised crime, then you're always in hock to that. So you're probably not going to stop once they once they have you um, on on their books. They can always threaten you with exposure from the from a different angle. So I'm I've been looking at some of the players who are rumoured to be involved and who are rumoured to be on that list, and some of them are here. And some of them do have some pretty compelling cases to answer. But because the Tennis Integrity Unit doesn't give any insight into what it's doing on a day-to-day basis, we don't really know what their investigations uh, are doing and how far they've progressed. The players that have been asked about it, and inevitably they have been, Roger Federer has been in, Novak Djokovic has been in, virtually every player who's spoken over the last 24 hours has been asked about this situation. Most, the vast majority, have said that they haven't had personal experience, although Novak Djokovic did detail something in 2007 through a member of his team at the time had been approached, but it had never come directly through to him. Um, And certainly Roger Federer yesterday was saying, look, if... If somebody has got something to to report on this situation, then name the names. That hasn't obviously happened. Well, that's a difficult thing because uh, certainly if you're going to put it in a paper or or, a, or on a website, you have to have um, some security against libel cases. It may actually be easier technically for the Tennis Integrity Unit to bring a uh, a civil case or civil prosecution because they only need to have the balance of evidence, i.e. 51% of the evidence on their side, whereas in a criminal or liable case, you may need to have beyond reasonable doubt. So it's very difficult to name names, and uh, I don't think, that, that, I don't think that, that negates the value of this piece of journalism. Um, what I do object to is the sort of knee-jerk reaction from a lot of players to say it doesn't happen at the top level, and also from the, the authorities to say it's a really an issue for futures and, and challenger events. I don't believe that. I, I'm really quite convinced that while, yes, I, I agree the preponderance of it will be in those small events, but I do think that there are individual cases going on at the top level, and, and I wrote in the paper this morning that they are more serious because you defraud every viewer, every fan, when you fix a match, and by definition, you're defrauding a number of people at any event, but at a, at a slam or an ATP event, you're defrauding thousands and thousands more. The, the logic is that at the lower level, where there is simply less money available to win, there is more incentive to do this in terms of the logic of that situation, whereas the higher up you go, the more money people are earning, the less likely it is to happen. Yeah, I mean, that, that, is, the, that is the logic, but it's a massive assumption to make. It is true, it's definitely true, that since the late 2000s, when uh, match-fixing was at its high point, there has been a massive improvement at the top level, and a lot of it has been driven down the ladder to the lower events. I, I do believe that, but I don't think that we can just say, 
oh, it's all fine, the big players, nobody in the top 50 is doing it. I've seen some very compelling evidence that people in the top 50 are doing it and have been doing it in the last year and have been doing it on, on, on a large scale. Um, you know, maybe the top 20, there's not many people who, who you would point a finger at. But you don't have to go much below that before you see some, some people whose names attract a lot of rumour. I know you can't charge them with it, but, uh, but there's so many people have heard negative things about them that, that you do wonder what their uh, status actually is. That's a massive difference, though, isn't it? Hearing rumour, hearing... Um, intelligence or seeing patterns and, and it's, it's, it's a different thing to actually having evidence that you can go forward with and do something about. Yeah, I mean, there was, a, there was um, one of our reporters spoke to a expert on tennis, sorry, on, on, on sports betting integrity who pointed out that Stephen Lee, the snooker player, had been successfully prosecuted basically from the combination of betting patterns in his play. Um, now, now in tennis, Chris Commode said to us that you have to prove the link between the player and the corrupter. And this is also what the Tennis Integrity Unit say. But I do wonder if there are instances where um, the, the, the patterns are so vivid and, and if you combine it with some uh, extremely unlikely collapses on the court, which seem to have, be perfectly timed to take advantage of those patterns, you might actually be able to... Um, to take some action against the players involved. It's a, t- it's a difficult one, isn't it? It is actually a difficult one, I think, for the authorities to know exactly the best way to move forward. Certainly, I think it does appear the sort of situation where you could imagine more resources being put into it as a result of the, the publicity it's had. But from what I've read, the Tennis Integrity Unit has said, well, we, we've got enough to do what we need to do. Well, they need to look at themselves because um, the people I, I know who, who study betting markets say that it is absolutely rife at challenger and futures level and there's a case every week, <coughs> if not more often, in these events. Um, so I, I think they, if, if uh, Nigel Willerton and his colleagues are saying that they have enough resources, then they need to rethink because we've had 14 convictions in seven years so they've been making an impact but they need to make a bigger one well certainly they were very keen to say at the press conference yesterday chris commode was there went on the uh the counter-attack effectively to to make the point that uh, in his view and in the view of the uh, members who were sitting on the top table there that they are not complacent that they f- that they do follow up every bit of intelligence that they do receive and one hopes that uh that will ultimately lead to uh, the situation improving. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the one point to make in, in defence of, of tennis is that the implication in the piece is rather that they are deliberately turning a blind eye or suppressing evidence. In fact, John Whittingdale said as much um, in very direct form yesterday, and I don't believe that is true. I don't believe that that has been shown. I, I just think that it's, as you point out, an incredibly difficult thing to do to bring prosecutions. And I think, yes... The, the, I wrote in the paper, the scope and the quality of the Tennis Integrity Unit's work is called into question, but I don't believe that their intentions or their probity are. That's what's been happening off the court. Mm-hmm. We have had some tennis, haven't yeah. we? Today we've had some British players uh, playing and a fabulous win for Johanna Conta. Yeah, very good, although uh, Venus Williams was... Not much cop at the same time. Did you feel that I, I was really not convinced? 
Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/spoken today. So the, her level of fitness. She was wearing heavy strapping on her right leg. She has now uh, done uh, for the second time in the year. She's done a runner rather than speak to the press. So we can't actually ask her. What uh, conditions she was in when she came to the court, which is kind of annoying, and also uh, it's a bit feeble, really, for a woman who who has in the past shown herself to be a you know a fine role model and a good spokesperson for the sport.、Um, Does make me wonder, therefore, how whether the Sjogren syndrome that she suffers from the fatiguing illness maybe was causing her some issues. She certainly she didn't look herself out there. She was sluggish. Um, she didn't cover the court well enough, and it, and to be、uh, competitive, she has to be at the ball in time because she、um, she needs to bully her opponents. She needs quick points, but to, but to play quick points, she's got to get to the ball and be able to deliver some some serious talk on her shot. And if she just ends up、um, scrambling balls back, then she won't last long in the points, and that's what happened. And Joe just just played a controlled and sensible match, and、uh, you know she's a grinder, Joe, which is. Not meant to be a criticism. It's, it's a good thing. She just keeps on、uh, putting the ball into the corners and making you go left and right until you either come up with a counter measure or you lose. And a continuation of the sort of form she was showing late last year. Andy Murray, meanwhile, looked right on it today. Yeah, I mean,、uh, the great thing was how hard he was hitting his forehand because at the U.S. Open. We still don't really know what was quite wrong with him, but he didn't unload on his forehand during the entire tournament. And、uh, you can't, we can't win top-level tennis matches without hitting your forehand hard. That's a, that's a given. So、um, today was a, the shot looked really strong,、um, and he just、uh, swept very out of his way, pretty swiftly. He actually managed to go to about two-hour match, but that was that's because there were a lot of deuce games,、um, and Andy won most of them. So success for Andy Murray and Johanna Konta. Conta now takes on Zheng Saisei of China, while Murray meets Sam Groth, the fastest server in the world. But it's the other Australian, Leighton Hewitt, that everyone here is watching. Hewitt will take over as his nation's Davis Cup captain this year, and I spoke to Pat Rafter on Five Live Sports Extra's Tennis Breakfast Show to ask him for his Hewitt memories. A 15-year-old、uh, for a Davis Cup tie in Adelaide, he he came as a hitting partner and. Remember, I played him some points, and I realised I was down, losing, thinking this is a bit unusual.、Um, probably two in the world back then. And anyway, yeah, he was、uh, he was a, a real shining light as, as a kid back then, and competed really well. And 
and now he is. Oh God, that was a long time ago. Now it must be long, you know, 22 years ago now. So he had an amazing career. What made him special? What has made him special over the years? He's always found a way. You know, found a way to compete, found a way to win, found a way um, just to be a great tennis player. He was uh, always fighting the elements in terms of size and, and, and power and all those sort of things, but his um, tenacity was, that was probably one of the greatest uh, we've ever seen. How much has he done for Australian tennis, do you think? Well, he came in at a pretty good time as well. Myself and Philip Hoos were doing pretty well, and then he took over the mantle for, for a long, long time. And there was a spell there where um, the Australian tennis was probably a little lean, and he was always around the top 20 in the world there for so long, just, just holding it all together. Um, and now we see another generation of kids come through. So the, the game is, is left uh, very healthy, and I think a lot of those young kids have always looked up to Leighton as well. I was going to say, what does he do for them and for the, for the next generation? Because he's not going away, is he? He's hanging around. Yeah, he's straight back into it. That's right in the Davis Cup. He'll be involved very heavily on the coaching development side. So that's where, where Leighton's at, and he's going to be very involved with Australian tennis, which is great. He loves his Davis Cup, doesn't he? And now he's, now he's the captain. Yeah, he loves representing Australia, and Davis Cup's our, our pinnacle for tennis. So he's the, uh, he's the man behind the scenes right now, so he's going to have his hands full. Do you think he's going to be maybe a bit emotional when this thing finally does come to a conclusion? I don't know. I'm actually interested to see. Um, I was actually just thinking that same thing today. Uh, we'll, we'll know if he loses tonight, if he's emotional. Final one, just to think back, I was watching a, a video of him looking about 12 years old with a, with a shaven head winning Wimbledon. And, um, you know, to think that a guy with his type of game and his type of physique could win Wimbledon, how big an achievement was that? Yeah, well, I said his strengths were, were different to a lot of other strengths like Sampras's and, um, and to a degree Agassiz. You know, he made up for, for abilities and he had to be better at certain, at certain things. And, um, you know, he moved very well, was always really fit, competed very well, knew how to play the game, very, very smart, intelligent tennis brain. Um, he learned a lot of other attributes that a lot of other players never learned. Um, and, and that's why he, he was the best. So there's Pat Rafter on Leighton Hewitt, whose Australian Open story will continue against David Ferrer in round two. Commentating on his first round match for BBC Radio 5 Live Sports Extra was the British Davis Cup captain, Leon Smith, who told me afterwards that it was like watching Hewitt of old. Oh, the way he, yeah, when he won the, the, the match point, you know, he fell back on his back. It was like he'd won the tournament. Um, it was amazing seeing the reaction, clearly very emotional. Um, and I think it's, what's great is another match to look forward to now because we're really privileged to be able to watch this great player finish his career. Uh, it's a privilege to be around it and to see those scenes tonight. Um, but I think what we'll see is another blockbuster. He might not win the next match, but the fact that the crowd can get into the next match against Ferrer, where it was difficult tonight with two Aussies playing, I think we'll see a very special occasion. Just imagine the rallies we got to look forward to. In that, I mean, these are two men, not massive men, but they're going to be hurtling around the court, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, uh, Leighton Hewitt is still definitely physically fit enough to put up a, a good challenge. Uh, there'll be a lot of long points. I think the crowd will get into it because of that. It'll be very exciting, and I think it's a fitting way, if it is his last match, I think it's a fitting way more than what would have been if he'd gone out tonight. 
Now, before Hewitt, you and I on BBC Radio 5 Live Sports Extra on the Tennis Breakfast show there, we were, we were commentating on Rafael Nadal up against Fernando Verasco, a repeat of their semi-final here from seven years ago. And, in fact, Verasco is just walking past us now in the corridor. And he's obviously been hanging around for a while, doing all his media commitments as well. Probably had to refuel a bit, Leon, after putting in four hours and 41 minutes. But he, he beat Nadal. And that final set, I mean, describe what you saw. It was extraordinary wasn't it? Well, you just said it, it was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, the pace and the power that was coming out of uh, Verdasco's racket was quite exceptional. We've seen it before with them. We saw them when they, they played that amazing match previously at these championships. But this last set was just relentless. I mean, his forehand was absolutely huge. Even on some of Rafa Nadal's first serves, he was managing to get his racket onto it and just hit the most extraordinary angled winners. It was incredible. I think he was a bit stunned at the end of how well he managed to play for that length of time as well. But it's it's what this sport is so great about. We love when we get some upsets, of course. It was, of course, sad to see Nadal leave a tournament so early because he brings so much to the event and the way that it plays. He's a great ambassador. The fans absolutely love him. But it is matches like that that capture all of our imaginations. That's going to take Nadal a little while to recover from, isn't it? Because, I mean, he would have come in here with high hopes. He's been in form. It was. I mean, I think everyone was talking about the resurgence of Rafa Nadal. He obviously made final in, in Doha, and OK, he got very badly beaten uh, by Djokovic in the final, but he had shown signs uh, over recent months that he was finding that form again, and he was going to be back really with the big boys in the slams this year, which you know he still might do, especially as it turns to the clay. But this is a, a bitter blow. Probably when that draw came out, when he saw it was Verdasco, he knew it was going to be dangerous. They know each other very, very well. And if someone has got firepower to cause problems, it certainly is Verdasco, and it proved to be the case. But uh, Rafa will bounce back, he always does, but it will be a major setback because he'll have had high expectations coming in. You had a busy few hours earlier on today, didn't you? Three British players on the court at the same time. Yes, uh, you know, my focus uh, primarily was on Dan Evans, who's on the same time as Andy, because I've been working with Evans through this tournament. Um, you know, he'll be disappointed that he wasn't able to put up more of a, a battle against Lopez, but, you know, he hasn't been in around top 20 players for quite some time now and, and you know it's a posit- it is a positive step for him to get through the qualifying of a slam again it's another step forwards as he tries to move towards a top 100 ranking which I'm absolutely confident he will do so long as he keeps the focus which he's displayed um, these last six seven months uh, he's certainly on the right path for that he's got a good schedule coming coming out he's going to be doing a little bit of traveling with Mark Hilton who's an excellent traveling coach um, and and let's see where it takes them, but it's certainly a step forwards. Um, and the two players, yeah. When Andy, uh, you know, everyone talked a lot about uh, Young Zverev as one of the up and coming players, which he absolutely is. But uh, Andy never ever underestimates any opponents. He treats everyone with absolute utmost of respect. He'll have looked at videos of how to play him, and 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 he's been working very hard in his own game, and he's in a very good place with it. Um, and and that is a, it's good to win quickly for Andy as he moves through the tournament so that's important um, and then as for Aliash uh, Bedani I think it was a, uh, actually a match on paper I thought it could be quite a good one for him because he's very mobile he's quick uh, I thought he could neutralise a lot of Stevie Johnson's big serving um, but having watched the match Stevie played a great match he served very well he didn't give anything away um, and Aliash maybe could have come forwards a bit more in the match I thought that's one thing on Stevie Johnson's backhand who slices literally everything that maybe can come forwards a bit more but 
Um, I've got no fears about Ali Ashi's game. It's in a good place. He's you know ranking around 50 in the world. He's doing very very well, um, and he'll keep working hard. I'm sure he'll push forwards. And finally, Johanna Conta. How about her today? I mean, that's just absolutely fantastic. I mean, for so many different reasons. But one is beating such a great player that she'll have looked up to for so long in Venus Williams, but also to do it in a massive court and a huge stage is, just shows how far she's come in dealing with the pressures, anxiety and dealing with occasions and it's, it's another feather in a cap and she'll get such great confidence from that. She will. We've had the great Britain Davis Cup captain here with us on the Tennis Podcast tonight. Brought to you in association with The Telegraph. Leon, go and get some sleep. Thank you very much, you too. And you, go and get some sleep as well. We'll talk to you soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.